Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website at independent.org. We've also got our current print edition out around the city in our red and white news boxes in public libraries and other venues. Today we've got another fantastic show lined up. uh, And I'm also joined by our co host, Amma Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Yes. And uh, during today's show, we're going to talk about the City University of New York and how plans to return to mostly in-person teaching this semester has created a cascading set of woes for students and faculty alike. We'll also hear from the socialists who will be leading City Council's Committee on Public Housing and her vision for reviving NYCHA. And we'll also hear from striking workers in North Brooklyn who are squaring off against a billionaire boss. But first, in breaking news today, the second police officer who was shot in a hail of gunfire Friday night in a Harlem apartment has died. Wilbert Mora, 27, died this afternoon from his wounds. His p- patrol partner, Jacob Rivera, 22, died Friday shortly after the attack, which occurred when they were responding to a domestic dispute. The shooter, LaShawn McNeil, 47, also died from his wounds yesterday. This incident comes as Mayor Eric Adams faces growing calls to address public safety concerns in the city. He had this to say yesterday after rolling out his plan to address the situation. It's not just a plan for the future. It is a plan for right now. So that was uh, Mayor Eric Adams. Uh, joining us uh, uh, to talk about this some more is uh, is Ted Ham. It covers uh, criminal justice issues for the Independent. Uh, Adams has uh, faced a, you know a growing call to do something um, amid a, a number of high profile shootings and other incidents, including the um, the killing of Michelle Go, the Asian woman who was pushed off the subway platform at Times Square a couple of weeks ago. And uh, uh, Ted, it's good to have you with us. Thanks, John. Greetings, Amba. Hi. And, uh, so, I mean, first of all, I, I mean, last year, Eric Adams ran very aggressively on uh, the issue of public safety and how he was uniquely suited to uh, address what, what he defined as a, as a crisis. Uh, your thoughts now, is he almost being uh, hoisted on the petard of his own rhetoric? Uh, it seems a little unfair to expect someone to solve these complex problems in less than one month in office, but uh, certainly there's a, a lot of media clamor of, of that sort. Sure. He certainly raised expectations during the primary last spring. If you'll recall, he was bouncing around holding press conferences at every incident, uh, the shooting in Times Square, uh, a domestic quarrel in Park Slope that ended in a shooting and so on. Uh, You know, so he was sort of um, presenting himself to voters as someone who was, who had the solutions based on his experience, et cetera. But then he came into office and he didn't really roll out any clear agenda in the first few weeks regarding policing or, or anything else uh, that I've seen that, that we've seen thus far. So now the spate of incidents has made it forced him to um, initiate the, the, the changes he's proposing or try to 
and initiate the changes he's, he's, that he's proposing. And so, you know, so I don't, I don't think it's the, it's appropriate to necessarily to to slag him for 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 raising those expectations, but he but he did in fact do so. Right. And, and can you highlight real quickly what he was proposing yesterday? A, a variety of different initiatives, uh, some emphasizing uh, su- social support networks and things like that, and violence in- funding for violence interrupters. Although he uh, did say that they should be working closely with the NYPD, which is problematic. Uh, that's not how they're intended to operate. Um, and then he wants uh, uh, to restore the plainclothes unit, which is re- creating a lot of controversy because they've been responsible for several high-profile killings in the recent decades, uh, Eric Garner, uh, going back to Amadou Diallo, et cetera. Um, and uh, the um, initiatives regarding raising the age are, uh, the, of, are, that have been raised, he wants to allow judge, uh, um, 16 and 17-year-olds to be prosecuted as uh, they would be as adults 18 and over. Uh, for violent gun crimes and so on, so that's that's creating a, a, a some outrage in criminal justice reform circles, and also the proposal to let judges determine dangerousness, which is uh, a very vague definition. Even the chief judge of the uh, uh, the supervising judge of the um, Office of Court Administration today said he didn't know what doesn't understand what that determinant is or how, how you can predict. I mean, it, historically, it's been, uh, uh, I mean, racially coded. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So uh, if you, and, and, and the way we've written about in the independent, there are serious problems with the way judges are, are chosen. Uh, and now uh, Adams is under pressure. He does get to pick a number of judges himself. And so he's getting pressure to, only appoint hardline judges and, and even to remove um, uh, judges that are not seen to be hardline, hard, hardliners and so on. So there's a real clim- cr- climate of crisis and outrage right now. Um, but maybe it causes, maybe there's also some need to, to sort of uh, step back and, 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 re- and just not uh, stoke the fires a little as, 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 as has been happening. Right. And you just mentioned violent interrupters, Ted, um, that you said that part of the the mayor's new plan is to have violent interrupters work with police, which they're not supposed to do. Could you explain um, what those what a violence interrupter is for those of us who might not know? Well, sure. They go out. These are people who are, uh, go out into the community. They are uh, many have been uh, exp- encountered the criminal justice system themselves, uh, formerly incarcerated folks or and so on. Um, that they can go out and try to uh, resolve conflicts with um, that, that seem to be escalating, right? So it's not like they would be completely isolated from the NYPD because they they know who everyone is in the community. That's the whole their whole point. But they sh- if they're perceived to be snitches for the NYPD, then they're, they're not going to gain any traction with uh, the people they're trying to reach. So. Um, you know, it's a matter of approach. I mean, it's so so it, those groups know that, and they they can operate, um, they maintain, try to maintain their independence as much as possible. And, and with the deaths of these two police officers, uh, uh, Jacob Rivera's funeral will be will be in the next couple of days, and then um, for Wilbert Mora as well. Um, I mean, there's often, uh, I mean, obviously, the you know the the grief for the people who who 
their family members and other people who care about them is it's very real. But there is a tendency for, uh, you know, uh, the police union and other uh, ideological actors uh, that want, uh, you know, uh, un, uh, unhindered uh, police power in the city to sort of try to leverage these moments to you know, essentially demand a sort of unblinking unity with the NYPD. Uh, it, does it seem like that's happening a little bit, especially in the way that uh, pressure is coming down on the, the new Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, to modify uh, some of his uh, stances? He, he's made it clear he wants to send fewer people to jail, not more. And you covered his uh, race a lot last uh, last year. Sure. And many people pointed out that he was making uh, the proposals he is uh, initiated. He was talking about them on the campaign trail. So he's just following through on his campaign promises uh, towards decarceration and so on. Um, but he did face a unprecedented amount of hostility in the press. And even in fact, you have a uh, Republican candidate for governor, Lee Zeldin, uh, seen perceived to be the front runner. He's a congressman from uh, out in Long Island that he's actually made uh, firing Alvin Bragg sort of a part of his campaign pledge, or he's trying to pressure Hochul to, uh, Governor Hochul to do that now. And others have joined in uh, in that call. And, you know, that's just uh, ridiculous. And the fact that, that he's not able to even uh, get traction on uh, in, into his uh, settle into his office and initiate some of the changes he actually has been proposing and he ran on and was elected on. Uh, but then so, something that also to keep in mind is that these both New York Post and uh, Lee Zeldin and these others who are calling, for, you know, un, unbridled police power and fierce advocates of, um, at least in the New York Post, is a fierce advocate of gun control in the city, but is aligned with uh, the Republican Party. Lee Zeldin is not an advocate of gun control. He's a, a, a strong ally of the NRA. And so they're you know, part of this uh, network of, of gun uh, advocacy that essentially the, the, on the larger level, national level, and that's creating part of the problem is the prevalence of guns that are flowing into the city here. So uh, there's no there's no saints in this fight. Right. And talk a little bit about Ted um, Alvin Bragg having to change some of his sentencing practices um, in regards to um, gun charges and how he's had to step back on that. Well, he was saying that he wouldn't pursue uh, cases in which just there was merely possession of a gun. Uh, that didn't involve any um, use of that gun, right? I, that's how I understand it. And now he's mm -hmm. saying he will um, consider charging in those cases. So, yes, he is under pressure uh, to, um, to adopt a hard line on guns. Uh, you know, that's – I don't know that that's really going to um, – antagonize his supporters i don't you know that's that's his calculation to make uh he's certain I, I, I just think he's under the microscope uh and now every incident gets so much more attention than in, in years past i mean there there were officers killed in the line of duty under um michael bloomberg and ray kelly um and you know the, the city was not up in arms about the city going be going becoming totally out of control chaos and so on so uh you know it's a different era there social media certainly plays into it but um you know this 
hopefully this is just a, a spike in 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 high profile incidents but you know we, we will see there is the problem of there are more guns uh that have trafficked into the city so that 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 creates the potential for more problems for sure right that definitely is a problem just when we think of sentencing you know it's important to zoom out think big picture and also remember that for sentencing, especially with gun charges, it's likely that someone will end up in Rikers and that the current state of Rikers is really can't explain how worse it is than ever. Um, right. So and and Adams is certainly not um, taking a progressive stance and turning Rikers back over to the, con- con- the corrections officers union and uh, the, their the commissioner that they wanted. Uh, so it's yes, it's that's that situation is a mess for sure. Oh yes, and then well, uh, yeah, I was just gonna say we we don't have time for that conversation, but I encourage our listeners to 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 look into it, and we uh, we're gonna change gears here, right, John? Yes, uh, but Ted, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Yes, thank you so much, okay. and Pleasure. we appreciate your ongoing coverage of, of criminal justice issues for the Independent. Okay, take care. Okay, so we're gonna yes uh, switch gears here. Uh, the City University of New York, CUNY, uh, um, its new semester begins uh, on Thursday, uh, the largest urban university system in the country uh, with 11 senior colleges, seven community colleges, and various uh, graduate schools. Uh, it's in a bit of uh, turmoil. The uh, leadership of CUNY announced several months ago that the new in the new semester, there would be 70% of courses would be taught in person and a cap of no more than 30% of classes would be taught online. Well, between August and now, something called Omicron happened and uh, once again, but, you know, flooded with a, a, a wave of, of COVID has washed over the city and the, the country and uh, enrollment in this uh, upcoming semester has plummeted at a number of CUNY campuses, especially its community colleges which in turn is leading to layoffs for a number of part-time faculty. And uh, yesterday, uh, members of rank-and-file action, a militant uh, caucus within the uh, larger faculty union at CUNY, uh, rallied outside of the headquarters of CUNY on East 42nd Street. And uh, our the Indies, uh, Sue Brisk, was there. And I believe we have some audio footage we can go to, uh, hearing from some of the people who are out there in the cold demanding that CUNY change course and come to its senses. Stop that! Stop that! But I'm going to give you a few highlights from Osos Community College. Last year, we paid our president $266,000. We also paid our ex-president $160,000. No one has explained to me why we paid someone who was retired $160,000 the same year the 3,000 adjuncts were laid off. Finally, the host house budget allocates $1 million for the library every year. It allocates $2 million for security. We pay twice as much money to have cops on campus than we do to run a library. My name is Travis Sweat. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor at Medgar Evers College. Uh, I've been there for a few years now, been uh, teaching in the CUNY system for six years now. Uh, 
uh, I am yet another adjunct uh, who is facing uh, basically layoffs through incompetence and apathy uh, due to the chancellor's mandate. Stop that! Okay, so voices uh, from the rank-and-file rank action protesting yesterday afternoon outside CUNY headquarters in Midtown. We're now uh, going to be joined by uh, Nick Nicolutis. He has uh, um, been an adjunct uh, an English professor at CUNY for six years. He taught at the Borough of Manhattan Community College. Uh, he left there at the end of last semester uh, and is now teaching um, at City College and Baruch and has been navigating this whole enrollment crisis himself as well. Uh, uh, and also Nick uh, is a member of the WBAI Listener Station Board as well, uh, manages to squeeze that into his other very busy activities. Uh, Nick, welcome to welcome to WBAI. Yeah, welcome. Thank you very much for having me and talking about this. So, you want to uh, just give your uh, assessment of, of where where things stands and how serious this uh, situation is for CUNY students and the, and faculty. Yeah, the the situation is 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 very serious, and um, you know if you you look back to the beginning of the pandemic back in the summer of 2020, CUNY uh, laid off something like 2,800 adjuncts. Um, and in that time, you know, adjuncts like me and my comrade Travis, who you heard from and others have had to, from semester to semester, constantly fight for jobs. Um, and that's not nothing, it's not necessarily a new thing, right? But we figured that at some point we could get some sort of stability, you would think. Now we're back here again, you know, back in last semester, as you mentioned, in the beginning of last semester, the administration decided that they would do a 70-30 return, right? So 70% in person, 30% online. And so now we're facing a crisis of, uh, you know, a manufactured crisis of enrollment, where the thinking, right, or the ideology or whatever you would want to call it was students want to go back. Right. Students want to be back on campus. People want to be back on campus, which, yes, sure. Um, I, I don't discount that, right? I, I'm teaching, uh, you know, in person. I'm not super excited about it, um, given the kind of um, uneven way that um, returning has been treated in general at CUNY. But, you know, what really bared out is that students don't want to come back. Um, and as you said, you know, community colleges are particularly hit by this and, and something like at places like LaGuardia Community College, you know, um, some uh, comrades did some digging uh, online to get some data. And we found that on January 15th of 2022, there was about um, 5,950 students enrolled at LaGuardia Community College in Long Island City which is down from one year ago on January 15th, 2021, from 15,400 students. So we're talking about only a third of the student population has registered. And so what so this has, you know, it has ripple effects throughout the entire system. 
right each of that person's family their you know their future their finances but tell us what should be done to address this crisis and also I mean, we can only speculate, but why would they continue to have the 70-30 um, in-person online when their enrollment is dropping so much? I mean, what, nobody wants that, right? But also, how can we address yeah. that? Yeah, and to your second question first, um, why um, is, you know, this is, the chancellor is not making this decision because of his own understanding of the situation, right? This is set in place by an ideology that is present throughout the state and the country, right? That it's time to get back to work, right? No matter the consequences, it's time to get back, right? And adjuncts, um, the adjunct system, right, um, is the um, place to cut the fat from CUNY, right? If you need to cut faculty, you need to cut people out, it's, it's the adjuncts that get cut first. Um, and so what can we do? We are asking that, number one, that we allow all courses to run, right? So there are minimum amounts of, of, of students that for a course to run, there has to be a minimum amount. And, and that's different for at different campuses, right? It could be 12, it could be 15, you know, it, it's different everywhere, right? So there's there's that, right? And so if that th- class does not meet that threshold, the class, the class will get cut. It will get canceled. The students will say, sorry, this class is canceled, right? So number one, we can stop that and say all classes will run. Number two, there's a massive amount of CARES Act money that the college is currently sitting on and has done nothing with. That money can be used to pay adjuncts to teach these classes that are low enrolled. Um, And we can lower the course amounts, right? So typically courses will be around 25, 27 kids. That's usually what I teach in my English, you know, 101, 201 courses are 25 to 28, somewhere in that range. We can lower that and say, okay, we're going to make courses 13 and add more courses, right? So there are many You'd ways. You'd be kind of like a private could... college for, for one time. Yeah, imagine if, if uh, a majority working class and person of color college treated their students with value, right? And gave them an education that wasn't shoving as many kids into a class as they could with underpaid adjuncts, right? Um, and th- these are steps that can be done. This isn't unheard of, right? Back you know, these are things that were talked about at the beginning of the pandemic to avert this crisis. And now it's off the table, right? It's just everyone get back to work. And the students, you know, we can talk about, you know, uh, adjuncts and other part-time faculty and staff that are feeling this, but it's students too. You know, you're getting students who are basically going to be kicked out of their classes, right? They're kicked out of these things because of there's not enough people to run these classes. So this whole 70-30 thing, right, I think is, it's set from the new mayor, right, who has said in so many ways and so many different times, right, it's time to get back from, you know, it's this, this mentality is everywhere, right? And so it's not that the administrators themselves are particularly at fault, but it is the ethos that is existing in this, I think, city right now, um, and in the country that that says we're doing this and it doesn't matter what happens. Right. Um, we're we're going to have to go in the next minute or two. Um, I just uh, I have one more question, but I also I mean have an observation, which 
is that while while this uh, sensibility is sort of in the air everywhere, just in terms of the structure of how CUNY uh, works, uh, there's a board of trustees, two thirds of which mm-hmm. are appointed by the governor, one third by yeah. uh, mayors. And essentially, the chancellor answers to the board of trustees and its chairman, mm-hmm. who is uh, Bill Thompson, a longtime political operative and uh, figure here in the city, really um, not an a- academic background per se. And he, in turn, a- answers to the, the governor who uh, uh, you know appoints him. He was appointed by Cuomo, and now Hochul is over him. And so you have Ho- Hochul and Adams, who in turn essentially answer – uh, to the real estate oligarchs and other ruling class mm-hmm. figures that want the city to, you know, quote, reopen. They want the working class to go back to work. They want uh, mm-hmm. office workers to go to the office. And it almost feels like CUNY is, you know, just sort of this Potemkin village they're trying to uh, put in place to kind of further the idea that things are getting back to normal. And and, and, and while the 70-30 mandate is damaging to CUNY, it serves these sort of larger political purposes. And, and you guys are kind mm-hmm. of almost like collateral damage in this sort of larger political ideological effort. And it's not just us, you know, you look at K through 12, right? Uh They went back and what happened? There was like less than half of the kids went to school one week. Right. So it's, this is everywhere, right? This isn't just us, but you're right. You know, CUNY is a balkanized system, right? It's, layers upon layers upon layers of bureaucracy and bosses, right? And everyone's kind of toting the line of the person above them, right? And it's, it's, it's a tough system to navigate with that level of bureaucracy where everyone defaults to the top and you have your, um, you know, landmark or, or yeah, a landmark educational institution of the city that needs to look like it's back to normal, right? Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, uh, Nick Nicolutis from uh, Rank and File Action, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI. Well, thank you so much. All right. We'll continue to follow this story and we'll be back with more after this short break. Tough by Alton Ellis. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. Later in the show, we're going to let you know how you can support this station and help keep its antenna beaming from the top of four Times Square in the middle of Manhattan across the New York City region. It takes a community to make community radio happen. 
So have your pen and paper ready for that info coming a little later in the show. But for now, we turn to our second segment where our new city council is getting down to work. It's the most diverse city council in New York City history. It's the first majorly female city council and perhaps its most ideologically progressive one as well. Last week, new council speaker Adrian Adams announced committee assignments for the 51 members, including the chairs of roughly three dozen committees. Adams and her leadership team of Diana Ayala, Selvina Brooks-Powers, and Keith Powers all hail from the establishment wing of the Democratic Party, as do members who were named to highly coveted posts leading the finance and land use committees. However, bold progressives and socialists will also lead a number of oversight committees, including Shahana Hanif at Immigration, Sandy Nurse at Sanitation and Salt Waste Management, Tiffany Caban for the Committee on Women and Gender Equity and her fellow Democratic Socialist Alexa Aviles for the Public Housing Committee. That committee oversees the New York City Housing Authority or NYCHA, which is home to more than 400,000 New Yorkers who live in more than 170,000 apartments spread across the city. NYCHA has been plagued by decades of disinvestment. In recent years, it has been targeted for a number of privatization schemes that would supposedly help it turn around. Joining us now to talk about her vision for NYCHA and public housing in New York and how she will lead the public housing committee is Alexa Aviles. Councilmember Aviles, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, John. It's really great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about where we are and where we're headed. Definitely. So uh, just for starters, can you talk about how you landed this assignment as uh, public housing chair and what your vision for NYCHA is. Yeah, so I, I, I guess first I should say that I'm just so honored to really take on this new role um, as a council member who has the second largest housing development um, in their district uh, with thousands of families. And as a person who has had many family members live in NYCHA themselves, I have a long history um, with public housing and know just intimately how important it is for our city and for our families. So it is really a an honor and a huge responsibility given the magnitude of the challenges that NYCHA residents are facing and NYCHA itself. As you said in your introduction, the decades, decades long of disrepair and disinvestment is really profound. Um, so the challenges are quite significant. Um, and, you know, many residents have uh, seen representatives come and go and very little positive changes. So the stakes are really high, uh, both for me and for the residents themselves. So my my vision really um, for NYCHA is really in earnest and in the most important way is to put the residents first and really bring them into decision making um, tables, right? To listen truly to the residents and to partner with them in how we are going to move forward with NYCHA and really hold the agency and other city agencies accountable for how they work um, with NYCHA. So really, we are going to be looking at um, just doing all kinds of work. Obviously, there is a real need for some serious hearings. Um, there's a need for an audit. Um, there's there's quite a lot of work to be done. Um, but my commitment is to obtain the repairs, honestly, that NYCHA residents deserve. They deserve to be in dignified housing. Um, 
And that's what we intend to do. Can you tell us a little bit, Alexa, about what NYCHA in your district that encompasses Sunset Park and Red Hook looks like? What's the public housing there? Yeah, yeah. So it is um, one of the oldest developments. Um, and again, the second largest in New York City, right? So um, unfortunately, the development is in very, very terrible shape. Uh, just recently, we went to do a walkthrough with public advocate Jumani Williams, Um to, to see some of the conditions firsthand of many of the apartments. And what I will say is it is nothing short of appalling what people are living through. Um, everything from clear mold on walls where children are living to literally crumbling walls uh, that residents have decided, well, I'll just stuff tissue paper in it, in the holes, because the water damage is so extensive. Wow. So, yeah, so the, the level of repairs and, you know, I think just one thing that's important to, to note on, on this visit is, you know, NYCHA not only is the capital uh, needs really expansive, but NYCHA has also been starved operationally. So for a complex with 3000 units, you know, they, they're budgeted for eight maintenance workers, yep. six you know, six which were hired, two who are apprentices. And when you look at the scale and the depth of the work, it is truly running from one crisis to the next without ever any time of actually doing something proactively. Um, it needs significant operational resources to hire, you know, the amount of workers that this, this complex needs, that public housing complexes across the city um, demand and deserve. Now, the... The trend in recent years uh, with the city has been to move toward uh, privatizing uh, the management of NYCHA facilities with programs like uh, RAD, Rental Assistance Demonstration. Uh, can you talk about that? It, 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 has that been effective or has that been overhyped and do you feel we need to go in a different direction? Yeah, so I guess, you know, it's always important to start with, you know, I believe public housing is a public good and a human right, right? And, you know, one of our city's greatest assets. Um, I don't believe in privatization. We've seen that, you know, the private market hasn't fixed anything in terms of providing dignified housing for working class and poor people. Um, so in terms of, you know, specifically moving units into RAD Pact, um, you know, the disinvestment over the years, which have been clear policy um, decisions uh, over many administrations and deprioritization of public housing has put tenants in, a, in an untenable situation to choose the potential of them ultimately getting pushed out under private management, um, then have the protections that they have under the public housing um, guidelines. So what we've seen, you know, we have there, we've seen that in fact, some um, developments under public management have higher rates of eviction. You mean so under there private is a, management? Under private management, yes, excuse me. Um, under private management, see, you know, higher rates of eviction. So, you know, one of the things that we need to do is um, we've also, I've also heard residents talk about also shoddy conditions um, under private management as well. Um, so it doesn't seem to have been the fix, uh, the miracle fix that I think was being proposed to tenants. Um, I think this is something we need to really look deeply into 
but I think we need to protect and preserve public housing from, from private management. Even, I mean, something as, as you know, significant as NYCHA's um, waste management, um, the level of waste, you know, throughout the campuses, I know in Red Hook, it is an ongoing and persistent issue where you have, you know, literally mounds of, of construction debris and trash on a sidewalk with workers who have a broom and a small little truck. Like the, the agency doesn't even have adequate equipment, right, to handle the level of, of waste um, that is coming out of the development. It, it really is really astounding when you think about it. Um, we just on Martin Luther King um, birthday this weekend, we were in NYCHA doing a cleanup and, you know, the level of, of waste everywhere, the trash was unbelievable. And the workers, you know, they were, they were trying their best to, to do the best job they could, which, you know, with, with completely inadequate equipment um, to deal with the scale there. Um, talk a little bit uh, more about your vision for a tenant-led NYCHA. Um, many, ten- many NYCHA tenant associations have low-member participatory pl- machines not and aren't connected to the lives of, of, of the majority of the actual residents who live there. So, so, Yeah, so, you know, I think that that's true in many developments, but it is also true that there are many developments that have dynamic tenant leaders that have been, you know, fighting this good fight for a very long time and could tell you all the tricks of the trade in terms of, you know, the agency and changing administrators and, um, you know, the games that are really played with people's lives. So, you know, I think under that vein, right, it is really lifting up those leaders and continuing to bring in more leaders. Um, you know, recently I observed even, you know, tenant elections and, and how that process was done in NYCHA, and I will say, um, in the most generous terms, it had a, has a lot to be desired. Um, so I think we really want to try to continue to engage residents um, to help them understand, you know, the stakes and to give them opportunities for engagement. I think it is pretty clear that um, you know, a flyer doesn't mean that um, it is appropriate tenant engagement, right? It doesn't mean that there's a real entry point. Appropriate engagement means you're actually on the ground talking to residents um, and truly engaging with them. So I think we're going to both use our committee, certainly our office, certainly our networks to continue working with the many advocacy groups, tenant-led advocacy organizations um, and groups to keep pushing forward on the importance of tenant engagement and being resident-led because no one, you know, no one has that urgency, unlike the tenants who are experiencing the situation on a day-to-day basis. Um, so it's really important to support that and encourage it and continue to take the lead of the residents. Right. And um, uh, before, uh, I guess one more one more NYCHA question before we pivot here at the end of the interview. Uh, you're, of course, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and I know it has a, a fairly large and active NYCHA working group. How much will you be also interacting with with folks at your political organization, DSA, around NYCHA policy? Yeah, thank you for the question. Listen, my my 
I'm very excited that so many of my comrades, right, we we all understand um, public housing is, you know, is socialist housing policy, right? Um, and it is such an important public good that we all need to throw down to protect. So I'm just really excited and hoping to engage as many as my as many of my comrades, right? Both who are public housing residents and some who are not around how do they support um, a resident-led movement um, to fight for public housing to make sure that is preserved and expanded. I mean, you mentioned, you know, it's a 10-year wait. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of people in New York City uh, that would need public housing if it were afforded. I, I would probably venture to say even more than that. Um, you know, there is very little housing opportunity in the city uh, for working class folks and for poor people at that. Before we have before we have to go here, can you uh, uh, I guess give us a quick update on uh, what else you've been uh, up to uh, uh, during your first month on the job? Oh, much of nothing. Uh, <laughs> we've been staffing up, uh, which I'm very excited. We we're fully staffed. I uh, have a great team. We have we have seen probably o- over probably 200 constituent cases. We're participating in participatory budgeting. Um, I've been appointed to several other committees, um, education, economic development, um, housing and buildings, uh, youth, and to a special task force on fire prevention related to uh, the Twin Parks fire in the Bronx. Uh, Our district has also experienced a number of fires. Um, And so this is a really critical issue. And with power outages in NYCHA, this all connects. Um, so fire prevention and safety is going to be really critical. Um, yeah, so that's just a little bit of what we've been up to. Um, certainly more to come, but meeting with our, you know, constituents, with local organizations, discretionary funding uh, opportunity is open. So we've been doing a great deal of that, getting ready for budget fights and, uh, and also, you know, meeting with our colleagues to figure out how we are going to move forward you know, this year, how we're going to align um, our policy asks and our visions and, and where there are intersections across committees. So, Alexa, as an outsider coming into city government for the first time, what have you learned about being in this new role that maybe you didn't anticipate ahead of time? Oh, great question. Um I guess I guess a couple of things, right? It's it's uh, relationship building is critical. I've known that I guess in all of my life, but it certainly is the case that it is really important to build relationships with your colleagues um, that can withstand the hard conversations, the tensions, um, the differences in political ideologies that you know obviously emerge. Um, and also just, you know, a whole new set of lingo that and bureaucracy that was like, oh, wow, um, you know, getting getting a law passed is so much more complicated than uh, one could ever imagine in in any form, um, because there are a lot of systems that have been created and some of which I will say don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, and we hope to tackle some some of that reform in terms of process. Right. There's. There's a very clear culture uh, that I think doesn't often serve us well. So mm-hmm. I think 
we'll be we'll be uh, doing a lot of work on on many different level, many different dimensions, uh, interpersonally, culturally, systemically, all of it. Uh, it's been a learning curve. Great. Well, we thank you for taking the time to, uh, today to talk with us. Uh, Councilmember Alexa Aviles uh, represents uh, District 38 in Sunset Park in Red Hook. Thank you so much. It's always a joy to talk to you. Great. We look forward to having you back with us in the future. Thank you. Well, okay. thank you both. You bet. So uh, we'll be back with more after this short break. O grileiro vem, pedra vai de cima deste morro, ninguém sai. O grileiro vem, pedra vai de cima deste morro, ninguém sai. Construí meu barraco de madeira em cima deste morro pra morar. Vem um cão do grileiro de rasteira, querer meu barraco de roubar. O grileiro vem, pedra vai de cima deste morro, ninguém sai. That was Un Griero Ben Pedra Ba by Soledad Bravo. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm Amba Gargarian here with John Tarleton. Before we continue on to our final segment, an important reminder. WBAI is in the final week of its emergency fund drive to pay the rent at four times square where its transmitter and antenna are located. We need your support. So please call 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number two WBAI.org. That's 212-209-2950 or online at give the number two WBAI.org. And that's to secure rent so we can secure the news for you. That's right, Amba. You're, our, when our listeners make the donations, they keep WBAI signal beaming across the five boroughs and beyond. If you're listening, you know it's New York and the rent isn't cheap. WBAI has to pay $17,000 per month for the rent at four times square for the transmitter and the antenna. So far, WBAI has raised almost $60,000 in this fund drive and is striving to reach $100,000 by the end of this month. So if you've been holding back, now is the time. Help us get there. Be, become the next person to pick up that phone or go to Give number two, WBAI.org, or you can call 212-209-2950. If you go online to give number two, WBAI.org, you can also sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month and receive all kinds of amazing benefits for doing so. 212-209-2950. And again, that number is 212-209-2950 or give the number 2WBAI.org. So be the next person who picks up the phone or goes onto the website and donates. The next person who helps bolster the station's future. Seriously, guys, we need it. That number is 212-209-2950 or give the number 2WBAI.org. 
Now, turning to our final segment, we are joined by Secretary Treasurer of Teamsters Local 553, Demos Demopoulos. Local 553 representatives are negotiating their first contract for striking union metro energy workers. United Metro is a, sorry, that's United Metro Energy. So United Metro Energy workers are on strike and Local 553 553 is is negotiating their first contract. And United Metro is a Brooklyn oil terminal owned by billionaire John Katsimatidis. The strike started nine months ago, and the company and its workers still haven't reached an agreement, while at least eight workers have been fired since the strike. Illegally, says the union. Now, Demos Demopoulos, welcome to the Independent News Hour. You're the lead negotiator for this contract. So tell us why the workers are on strike, how many of them that is, and what kind of work they do? Yeah, first of all, I want to thank you, Amber and, and John, for having me on and, and getting this message out. Uh, around 2019, uh, we organized a group of unorganized workers at United Metro, uh, the oil terminal, and that it's the terminal operators, the truck mechanics, and the service technicians that repair the oil burners. Uh, they service the five boroughs. They service Long Island. I believe they have some accounts up in Westchester as well. Uh, John Katsimatidis has been taking baby steps in negotiating a contract with us. So in April of, uh, of, of last year, so it's over nine months now, we decided to go uh, out on strike, thinking that would push him along, but unfortunately it has not. Every step of the way, he's been stonewalling us. Uh, he, he underpays his workers and has been for the area standards that we have established throughout the industry, uh, going back all the way to the uh, days of coal and then when oil came in. Uh, we're one of the oldest teams for locals in New York, and I'm proud of that. And uh, we've had uh, been representing uh, the industry since 1907. So we're not new at this, but unfortunately, Mr. Katsimatidis uh, has no respect for that or the working people in this terminal that are, and their families that they've been standing out in the street with us for all this time. Right. And can you tell us uh, more about the owner of uh, United Metro Energy, uh, billionaire uh, John Katsimatidis, and his anti-union ways? The chief leader newspaper reports that Katsimatidis has said that United Metro would go out of business if he settled on the union's terms. What's your response to that? And if you want to tell us more about the the boss man here. Well, that's ridiculous, that statement. And he said that to us in negotiations. Uh, As I said, we've been around a long, long time. Uh, Some of the most uh, largest oil companies uh, in the area we represent, uh, everyone working uh, for, for them and, uh, they seem to be doing very, very well. Uh, uh, it's it's not an easy industry. A lot of these workers are skilled, and it's hard to find people uh, that can do this kind of work. And we're proud of the work that our members do. So, uh, as I say, uh, we represent many of the companies, some small, some very large, uh, and it's ridiculous, that statement. And, and just to follow up, why did you all demand that uh, Katsimatidis be present at the negotiating table? Uh, The last few sessions, he was not there. Uh, He claimed that every time uh, 
he says something, I file an unfair labor practice charge against him, but that's certainly not uh, any fault of mine. Uh, and speaking on that, we have a number of, uh, of uh, uh, NLRB charges that are in Washington at this time, have been for quite a while. I guess with COVID and everything else, uh, they're stressed as well. Uh, but we, we're being very hopeful that any day now we're going to get a positive response from them. And uh, that may turn the tide on this strike and change it from a economic strike to an unfair labor practice strike. So we're, we're, we're hopeful for that. Right. And the NLRB is the National Labor Relations Board, uh, and they handle all of uh, the complaints and elections and, and all, all labor stuff. So yes. tell us, though, about the and- difficulty of of sustaining a nine month long strike. That's really long. The, the, the fact that the scabs are working, that they're making more, that they're unqualified, just the difficulty of nine months on strike. Yeah. It, it's been very difficult. Uh, but uh, I'm very, very proud of the guys uh, for hanging in there. I'm proud of my business agents uh, for being on hand all the time to uh, keep the morale up Uh you know, unemployment only lasted for six months and they had to be out on the street for a little while before they got that. Uh, but I'm getting support from my international James Hoffer and the international brotherhood of teamsters. Uh, I'm also secretary treasurer of the joint council where, uh, Thomas Giswaldi, uh, from local 282 is the president. And I've gotten a tremendous amount of support from all the locals in New York, all the teams, of locals, uh, that, I was fortunate enough because of their uh, uh, goodwill and support that I've been able to sustain these guys when unemployment ran out uh, to pay them every week uh, a check from that, that strike fund. And I couldn't have done it without all of them. And, and maybe the guys, even though their hearts are in it, would not be able to stand out there and, and, and fight this mogul uh you know, Mr. Katsimatidis, you would ask me a little bit about him before. Mr. Katsimatidis owns real estate. Uh, Mr. Katsimatidis owns an uh, uh, um, uh, oil refinery in, in Warren, Pennsylvania. He owns uh, a bunch of uh, convenience gas stations, I believe, in, in the Pennsylvania, Ohio area. Uh, he owns Castini Supermarkets. Uh, I think he has a concern in D'Agostino's. Uh, he's got a lot going on, a lot going on. So uh, he also owns uh, a competitor of yours, WABC Radio. Uh, and when I was growing up, uh, I'm a lot older than you two, but when I was growing up, you know, that was uh, the hit music station. And Not uh, anymore. It's f- filled now, with the right-wing cranks. Um, exactly. Unlike WBAI, you can have real, uh, real news and real uh, public affairs and uh, discussion. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here. But uh, um, uh, Demos uh, Demopoulos uh, from Local 553, thank you so much for joining us this evening to update us on the struggle of the workers out there at, at UMAC. And solidarity. Thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you both. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll have to leave it there. We'll be back same time next week, uh, Tuesday at 5 p.m. Uh, thanks to... Of course, uh, my co-host, Amba Gagari, and also uh, Sue Brisk for all her help uh, today. And um, please support WBAI. We and need thank you. you to Reggie, our sound engineer. And we are about to play Revolutionary, a song for you by Ace Moma, a New York duo. So uh, local music coming at you.